Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. This week, it's Trump impeachment, the sequel. And then, how should we think about social media banning the president of the United States? The House of Representatives has voted to impeach Donald Trump for the second time, charging him with incitement of insurrection, with 10 Republicans joining their Democratic colleagues in voting to impeach. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he will not use emergency powers to bring the Senate back into session for a trial before January 19th, meaning that the trial will take place in a Biden administration. And since it won't remove Trump from office, the only purpose of a conviction will be to punish the soon-to-be ex-president and perhaps to bar him from running for president again. And it's for precisely those purposes, according to our own newspaper's reporting and others, that McConnell is apparently considering trying to deliver enough Republican votes for a conviction. So, Michelle, as a longtime observer and deep admirer of Mitch McConnell's, tell me, do you believe he's really considering it? I can't imagine it. I mean, who knows? Because this has been, you know, 2021 has been a year of possibilities so far, right? Like a little more than a week ago, it seemed like Donald Trump was going to leave office as a fairly powerful figure as opposed to a disgraced, I mean, obviously he was already disgraced, but a twice disgraced national pariah. I didn't expect that John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were going to be voting on another impeachment. So, you know, the world is alive with possibility. But um, my guess is that Mitch McConnell wants the threat of a conviction hanging over Donald Trump for these last days. So he doesn't do further things to put Republicans in a difficult position. It seems to me that, you know, Democrats have given Republicans this sort of disciplinary tool that might make Trump, or at least people in Trump's diminishing circle, hesitant to, say, pardon a bunch of the insurrectionists, pardon Trump, um, you know, pardon all his kids, right? He he has something except, to hold Except him. Tiffany. No pardons for <laughs> Tiffany. He has something to hold him a little bit in line. But I think that, in a way, Democrats had potentially given Republicans a gift, right? I mean, you want to talk about unity. They were offering Republicans the opportunity to, after four years of benefiting from Donald Trump's, you know, kind of audacious lawlessness and kind of total partisan warfare, you know, after getting all the judges and the tax cuts and the deconstruction of the administrative state, as Steve Bannon said, they could do all that and then wash their hands of him at the end of it. But to do that, they'd sort of all have to hold hands and jump at the same time. And I think we saw in the House, you know, despite a few defections, that they're not going to do that. And so, you know, who knows? So one question is, how do you actually get 17 Republican votes in the Senate? 
Right. Now, you know, there's an argument that if McConnell is for it, he will get those votes because he dominates his caucus. He, you know, has enough power to get 17 senators to do it. He gets some senators who are retiring. He gets senators who aren't up for re-election for six years and so on. It's still hard for me to count to 17 very easily. Um, Ramesh Panuru of National Review did a Twitter thread a few days ago trying to come up with the 17 votes, and he got to 10 pretty easily. And then you start getting into figures like, you know, Marco Rubio, who wants to be president someday, going to vote to convict Donald Trump. Probably not. So it seems very likely that you're right. At the same time, the Republican Party has a big problem, (laughs) right? And Mitch McConnell is nothing if not a calculating steward of the purely political interests of the Republican Party. And it's not at all clear to me how that kind of calculation plays out with something like this. Because Right now, there was a poll yesterday or the day before, right, that said 40% of Republican primary voters would vote for Trump again in 2024. Um, Now, that's not an insurmountable advantage, and obviously a lot can happen in four years, but Donald Trump starts out the 2024 primary even after January 6th and the Capitol Hill riot as the favorite to be the Republican nominee again. And that reality is bad. Well, let me ask you this, Russ. It's bad for the country and it's bad for the Republican Party. And you can see the argument that if you prevent Trump from running again, some piece of his power goes away in a way that's worth the obvious risks to a certain set of Republican senators who vote for this. And not just prevent him from running again, but also sort of strip him of all of his post-presidential perks, right? I mean, you sort of put an asterisk on the whole presidency and kind of brand it an official failure and aberration in the same way that the first thing you learn about Nixon is that he was this figure who left in shame. And then later on, if you study politics, you learn that there was about a third of the people who were with him to the bitter end and s- stayed with him through it all, right? So Right, but can- that, that branding, that's for journalists and that's for, you know, that's for the history books and all of these things. And, you know, I'm sure Mitch McConnell despises Trump and would be happy to put that brand on him. But that doesn't affect Trump's power in the next four years. I mean, it would piss Trump off not to have those perks. But the thing that would make McConnell push it through if he could is just all about, does this diminish Trump's power for the next four years? Well, isn't there also a question of wanting to appease their donors who have shifted pretty rapidly against Trump? I mean, the reason that Kevin McCarthy, you know, rather then talking about this being a scam and a witch hunt, criticized Trump in pretty strong terms, you know, was very clear that Biden had actually won the election. I would guess that a big part of that is about big donors saying that they are not going to contribute to any member of Congress that participated in this pernicious fantasy. Yes, I'm sure that McCarthy's movement has something to do with that. Yes, it may be less of a calculus for McConnell because he has fewer members who participated in it. And I don't think he cares what happens to, you know, Josh Hawley's donor base right now, since he assumes that if Hawley falls apart, the Republicans can hold Missouri. But yeah, I I agree. That's certainly that's certainly in the calculation as well. 
So let me ask you this. Do you think that there are any Republicans who were genuinely shaken by the events enough that it sort of changed their perspective on Trump and the Trump phenomenon? I mean, I've got to imagine that if, you know, a bunch of like screaming leftists dragged a guillotine, in, you know, in front of um, Capitol Hill and were very close to, you know, kind of dragging out enemies of the revolution, that it would, you know, change people's calculus pretty quickly. I mean, yes, I think it, I think it, well, I mean, you can literally find one glaring example, right, of the of the 10 <laughs> Republicans right, right, right. Who, who voted to impeach Trump. The most fascinating one is Tom Rice from South Carolina's 7th Congressional District, which is a very Trumpy district. And Rice was one of the right, right, right. Republicans voting to object to the certification of the Electoral College. And he just sort of came out with a statement. He was like, enough is, you know, enough, <laughs> is enough, right? Uh, now, there's only one of him and most of the other people voting to impeach were, you know, from swing districts or... I don't think that's true, actually. The Cheney family is a distinctive case. Well, I also want to say that about Liz Cheney, I think it ma- I mean, who knows if it matters? But I also think that, like, the fact that Donald Trump, in his speech to the mob, specifically told them to get rid of Liz Cheney... Yes, had that probably to, had probably to have some had sort of some effect. effect. Yeah. I mean, my no, my but my impression is that there are a substantial number of Republicans in the House who didn't vote to impeach, but who are on Liz Cheney's side fundamentally and who have had their views shifted. And, you know, the fact, just the fact that conviction is a possibility in the Senate tells you that there's been some kind of shift, right? I mean, one one example, right, would be Andy McCarthy, right, who writes for National Review, um, who is nobody's idea of a, a sort of, you know, squishy cocktail party hanging out with the liberals conservative. Um, and he was someone who was for Trump and defended Trump in various ways throughout the presidency. He sort of has dismissed all the voter fraud stuff and critiqued it and then has essentially conceded that those of us who didn't think Trump should be reelected, you know, who didn't think Trump should be supported were right. Right. And, you know, I think Andy is a good a good stand in for a substantial number of elite kind of sort of Trump Republicans who are now like, OK, yeah, this was this was a gamble that we should not have taken. Now, do you, does that extend you quickly? Do you beyond- think that they would have do you think they would have come to that same conclusion if Donald Trump had helped Republicans keep the Senate? I think the Georgia results make it easier for Republicans who are sort of thinking about this in pure power terms to react to Capitol Hill in a morally appropriate way. But, you know, I also think there's just the experience of being in the middle of the riot, I think, had the stronger, certainly had the, from from just from conversations I've had, the stronger sort of moral slash emotional effect than the double defeat in Georgia. Well, I mean, it also just seems, I mean, who knows if this is, you you know, you can never do a direct cause and effect in these things, but there was obviously a sort of symbolic connection at the very least between Georgia electing the black pastor of Martin Luther King's former church and a young Jewish filmmaker. And then less than 24 hours later, you have insurgents with Confederate flags in the U.S. Capitol building. Yeah, it's a case of, at the very least, divine providence, you know, putting some little brush strokes on the, the canvas yeah. of the Trump Or the era, screenwriter. You could say. The, screen, the capital S <laughs> screenwriter, yes. 
Um, I'm curious what you think, I guess. I wrote a column this week sort of sketching out what I still think is an unlikely but more plausible than it was before situation where the Republican Party could really break apart after this in the sense that if you have, if the portion of the Republican Party, the majority of Republican voters who still like Trump, who think the election was in some sense corrupt, if they sort of feel in certain ways abandoned by their own elite and go sort of deeper into the kind of QAnonified worlds that has already elected a couple people to the House of Representatives, I think that puts some really strong pressures on the Republican Party that were not there before. And again, I sort of go back and forth trying to figure out, like, if Trump can't run for president again, on the one hand, you could say maybe that's more dangerous because it sort of liberates him completely to be as absolutely crazy as possible and, you know, sort of become the the exiled leader of, you know, the populist right. And so even precisely because he doesn't can't be president again or can't run for president again, he actually makes divides in the Republican Party worse. I think the other possibility is that, you know, one one interesting thing about the Trump era is there actually haven't been that many Republican politicians who have sort of succeeded by being super Trumpy. You have, you know, you have figures like Ron DeSantis in Florida and so on who are, you know, who are somewhat Trumpy, but they're still Brian Kemp. But they're still more in like the old Chris Christie fight with the media kind of lane than in the Trump lane. And outside a few House seats, Republicans have still been mostly electing pretty normal seeming Republicans. And I in that that reality makes me wonder if it if it just would be really hard for Trump to find a bunch of heirs, which he would need if he couldn't run again. But it all comes, but then it's like this, you know, he has heirs, obviously, in his own family. I don't know. What, <laughs> well, what look, do you, I mean, I think you have, look, you obviously, you have a Trumpier Congress than you had before. You have the two QAnon ladies. You yep. have Ronnie Jackson, you know, the kind of White House physician. You know, there's like a, a few more that you could name. But I also, Donald Trump himself has a pretty specific skill set, right? You can't sort of just recreate the combination of showbiz know-how and total sociopathy that he rose to power, you know, and so it's, there's not necessarily a Trump playbook that you can follow unless you already are a sort of international television celebrity. On the one hand, as somebody who thinks that the Republican Party is a force for evil in this world, you know, I tend to say I would love to see it crack up or become something akin to the California Republican Party or what the Arizona Republican Party is on its way to becoming, which is kind of amazing because, you know, a few years ago, Arizona was a pretty solidly Republican state. It's got two Democratic senators. It's got a Twitter account that issues calls for martyrdom. You know, you could sort of imagine the Republican Party going in a similarly self-marginalizing direction, even though the structures of our politics and kind of ensures that it's going to have some amount of power no matter what. But I guess the fear there is that I do think that the storming of the Capitol and, and we'll see if this is true or not. You know, when I've spoken to kind of experts on terrorism and white supremacism and radicalism, nobody really thinks that the storming of the Capitol is the culmination. Everybody thinks it's the beginning. You know, everybody thinks that that kind of for the people who did it, it was a victory. It showed that the institutions of American government are soft targets. There's all kinds of other stuff 
planned, right? You know, people who are in D.C. now compare it to the green zone in terms of the the military presence. There's going to be a bunch of armed statehouse protests this weekend. There's going to be armed attempts to at least get close to the inauguration. So it seems possible to me that we're in for, you know, something akin to Italy's years of lead with, you know, sort of a real where right-wing terrorist attacks are a recurring factor in political life. As much as I detest Mitch McConnell, I would rather have a Republican Party that kind of gets its lunatics in check and, you know, just kind of goes back to being the party of cruel Ayn Randism than the party of QAnon guerrilla warfare. I guess it's a question about how wrong I've been or not. (laughs) In analyzing extremism in the United States over the last couple of years— I mean, really longer than that, I've tended to focus on sort of the virtual side of it, right? And the extent to which sort of the internet creates these sort of endless spaces for fantasy and role play that do occasionally sort of burst into acts of violence, but they have tended to be sort of lone wolf type attacks. You know, one guy, one guy snaps or decides he's going to show off for everybody on the, on the white, white supremacist message board or something without becoming like a sort of organized, whether underground or KKK style pattern of violence. And, you know, a lot of people understandably think that this moment is sort of a tipping point. I have to say that I think that the the ridiculousness of so much of this, right, which includes, you know, the costumes, the the absurdity, can be a sort of cover for the serious threat. It's hard to take seriously, you know, someone going around in cow horns and animal pelts and... Complaining that he doesn't get organic food (laughs) in prison. But, you know, (laughs) the spectacle of all this, I think, is not um, incompatible with a serious threat. There's like this combination of, you know, surrealism and at the same time, what's happening underneath, I think we've seen, is is dead serious. And and this kind of ties back, so, well, I think, wait, I just want to say one yeah. thing. I think this ties back to the question of what's going to happen in the Senate. Because to some degree, I think it depends on what we find out in the next couple of weeks, right? Like law enforcement has said that people are going to be shocked by what comes out, which was kind of a shocking statement because there's enough shocking stuff that's already out there, right? Democratic members of Congress have said that they, you know, saw some of the people who they think were people who were participated in the siege on January 6th. In Congress on January 5th, they believe having been given access by some of their Republican colleagues to, you know, basically case the joint. And so we could end up finding out that there was more kind of official, either Republican or Trumpian complicity with this, which could turn it into an even bigger wrenching national scandal than it already is. Yes, I think that's possible. If it comes out that one of the QAnon members really did sort of collaborate on an invasion scheme, that's a different level from what we know so far. I guess my question is not... I. Totally agree that there are people who are serious about extremism and violence involved in this. I agree that some of the people who sort of present as unserious can become serious under the right context. I guess I'm uncertain about two things. One, what is the 
absolute number of people who are actually serious about violence here. And two, and, you know, and the number of people who are there with zip ties and those kind of things, like, I want to know what those actual numbers were and how it compares to, like, the number of people who are seriously at something like Charlottesville for violence. And two, I want to know what happens to those people who maybe are or about to become serious about violence when the full weight of the FBI and the surveillance state and the national security bureaucracy comes down on them. Because that hasn't happened yet precisely because so much of it has seemed like cosplay. Well, I don't know. I want to say I don't think that's right. I don't think that the reason that the national security bureaucracy hasn't come down on them is because it seems like cosplay. I think that we've seen people in the Department of Homeland Security saying that they have been pressured to shift their attention from right wing extremism to uh, Muslim extremism. Right. I mean, you had this guy, Daryl Johnson, in 2009, the senior intelligence analyst in DHS writes this report about growing white supremacist, white nationalist militia activity, and the right completely loses its mind. They start baying for Janet Napolitano to be fired, and eventually this unit in DHS is disbanded. You know, Daryl Johnson leaves government. You've had throughout the Trump administration people coming out and saying that they're being pressured not to spend their time and resources investigating the far right, right? You saw Elizabeth Newman come out of DHS. Um, people have talked about it in the FBI. And so, of course- but So now the, so now that's going to change. Yeah, no, right? I, I think, in, I think in a, so. In a substantial way. And I guess I'm saying that I'll be curious to see how potent and resilient this particular form of right-wing extremism is in its insurrectionist form when it's done this. I mean, you know, like a lot of people said, well, Charlottesville was this big victory for the alt-right. And in fact, Charlottesville was after the violence and the murder and the tragedy there. The next time the alt-right tried to do a big rally, it was a big joke. And maybe this case is different and it creates this kind of recruitment and copycat stuff. I'm just not sure. And I'm also not sure how the world looks after the pandemic. Speaking of um, institutions coming down hard on right-wing extremism, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about Facebook, Twitter, and the vast digital empire's decision to deplatform Donald Trump. So we'll be right back. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. 
And we're back. Michelle, this week you wrote a column about what I think is one of the most important long-term issues to come out of the riot and its aftermath, which is the debate over social media companies banning Donald Trump and trying to purge his more conspiratorial supporters from their sites. And there's a lot more sort of stuff going on around that. But do you want to summarize the column's argument for our listeners? Sure. I mean, the argument is basically that the platforms were right to ban Donald Trump um, in large part because they were just treating him like they treated everyone else, right? I mean, these platforms ban people who promote violence and spread pernicious conspiracy theories, not all the time, and they don't do it really consistently, but they do do it. And people don't generally think it's a huge problem. Like, I don't remember any kind of national outcry when Roger Stone was kicked off a lot of these platforms or when Steve Bannon was kicked off some of them after he called for the beheading of Tony Fauci. You know, people in Trump circles who post the kind of things that Trump posts end up getting kicked off social media and, you know, for kind of banning their terms of service. And there's not really a First Amendment issue here, at least an obvious one, because these are private companies. You don't have a right to have your speech amplified by private companies. And in fact, as conservatives have long argued, private companies have a right to First Amendment right to freedom of association, right, to not associate themselves with speech that they find abhorrent. That was a significant part of the argument in Masterpiece Cake Shop and some of these cases about bakeries that don't want to um, provide cakes for gay weddings. And, you know, I would argue that the freedom of association should be limited by civil rights law, right? I mean, none of these platforms should have a right to say, decide that they're going to ban Muslims or, you know, kind of ban any category based on race or religion, but they do have a right to ban people for inciting violence and spreading pernicious conspiracy theories. And they do that. And they get, they've given Donald Trump a pass on this over and over again because he's president. And so it's entirely justified, to my mind, to take that pass away, right? Especially since it's not as if Donald Trump lacks other channels of communications or kind of other ways to broadcast himself to the public. At the same time, it's sort of frightening that like a handful of these callow, young Silicon Valley gazillionaires can just like basically make a decision to shut someone out from these huge communication platforms that aren't really analogous to publishers, in part because basically everyone else on the, in the world has access to them. You know, and just the fact that Donald Trump is such a diminished figure after having his Twitter feed taken away, right? The fact that it really has sort of changed our political culture shows how powerful this is. And to me suggests that you don't want this to just be the whim of Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg, or you also don't want it to depend on the internal pressure of these companies. You want some sort of rationalized process and a process that has a system of appeal, because otherwise it's just going to seem incredibly, you know, kind of arbitrary and capricious. So I don't know. What do you think? Did you think it was right for them to kick Donald Trump off? I'm not sure. 
you you cite in the piece um, some people who um, you know American liberals would not necessarily expect <laughs> to be troubled by the decision. Right, Angela Merkel, Angela Merkel of Germany, and Alexei Navalny. Right, the Russian dissident who is no admirer of Donald Trump or you know obviously Vladimir Putin. Both said you know that this is a dangerous precedent in different ways and. From the point of view of European governments, right, there's sort of a particular question about, like, well, what does it mean to have these American companies <laughs> exercising this this kind of power um, that could potentially be exercised over us? But, you know, the point you made near the near the end, too, that, like, what what does it you can you can certainly construct a strong case that Donald Trump violated various norms and terms for Twitter, but obviously that case can be applied to Iranian ayatollahs and the Chinese Communist Party and different people who have right, not. But frankly, I think that's a case for banning more people. Yeah, that would be a case for banning more people. Yes. You know, and I mean, I Absolutely. also think that, look, I also just, I tend to think that these platforms in general are extraordinarily pernicious and have had a toxic effect on liberal democracy, which I, you know, value quite a bit. <laughs> Still still sticking with liberal democracy. Yes, right. No, I think that's right. I would like to see them, you know, kind of defanged and, and broken up. I actually tend to agree with Donald Trump's call for getting rid of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act because I think that Donald Trump doesn't understand what Section 230 does, right? He seems to think if you get rid of that, you will not be able to police conservative voices Whereas actually getting rid of that will either destroy these platforms altogether or force a much more stringent standard of moderation. I mean, I just think the effect of these platforms, you know, and you can listen to somebody like um, Maria Ressa, the Filipina journalist who is constantly being threatened with um, long imprisonment by the Duterte regime, and I've just heard her talk about the role that these platforms have played both in consolidating his power and facilitating harassment of, of journalists and dissidents. And whatever social benefit we've gotten from them, just I don't think that in general the authoritarian turn in global politics really happens without them. Well, and the, and the other thing— and. Here I should interpolate and say that for those who haven't listened to it, we have a special bonus episode of The Argument this week where our soon-to-be fearless leading host, Jane Coaston, hosts a debate about precisely how Section 230 could be reformed or whether it's just basically good and necessary and the internet depends on it. So if you want to go deeper into these questions, I recommend listening to that. To that last point, Michelle, though, I mean, one of the things that was striking about this was that, of course, Twitter didn't act alone, right? That you had this sort of general Donald Trump ban across all kinds of social media platforms. You had, you know, a Facebook ban and then Amazon stripping away the servers for the right-wing social media network that is something of a cesspool, but also presents itself as sort of a right-wing alternative or a more pro-free speech alternative to Twitter. And What's weird about these platforms is they are kind of a consortium. I, I'm not sure what the right description is for them, but the fact that you can sort of see them move together like this in a way that 
Um, right, but that's just sort of herd behavior, right? I mean, that's that's the same way in which you've seen a g- more general stampede away from Donald Trump by people who've been indulging him for all these years. I mean, which has just been fascinating. As somebody who has kind of waited for this moment for four years, thought that any moment, you know, American institutions were going to act in their own defense to turn Donald Trump into a pariah, and they just, you know, haven't. And if anything, you know, to kind of use an overused word, have normalized him more and more and more. And then suddenly the dam broke. And I think that has to do with both him inciting this terrifying attack on the Capitol and the fact that he's about to be out of power, right? Right. So all of a sudden somebody says, oh, we cannot abide this anymore. And you see the stampede away from him by, you know, corporations, by major sporting events, by New York City, which New York City decides to cut off the contracts for concessions, that it has with Donald Trump that are making him millions of dollars a year, which really stunned me that they could have done this four years ago, (laughs) right? That like the capital of the resistance had this tool in their pocket and did not do it earlier, which I think goes to the fact that even though the Trumpists, you know, think that they have been unfairly marginalized because Melania Trump doesn't get to be in the cover of Vogue like Michelle Obama— that in fact, a lot of institutions have, when faced with the choice, you know, they've, they've been faced with this president who's a demagogic madman, and they have to decide whether to treat him like a madman or to treat him like president, and they treat him like president. And then the other piece of it with Parler is that there was, seemed to be planning for a terrorist attack going on on its site, right? There were certainly many, many calls for assassinations going on on its site. And I think the same thing was probably true of Twitter and Facebook, right? So they're not just making a decision about, do we want to be associated with Donald Trump? It's, what do we do given the knowledge, which we've had for quite some time and they should have, you know, woken to it earlier. But now they have knowledge that if there's a follow-up to the Capitol attack, they're kind of a party to it. But I think, I guess I I would say that in watching this happen, in watching all of these places sort of move together in concert, you can, you know, sort of see why why you might not want that to happen exactly, (laughs) absent, absent some provocation of this scale, right? Because it does sort of, it shows you where certain kinds of consolidated power lie in right. American well, life, not, right? And it's and, nice to see conservatives waking up to, like, the fact that a wholly privatized public sphere is not great. Well, this is the tricky thing, right? The public sphere has always been privatized in the sense that it has always been dominated by private companies, newspapers, television networks, and so on. There's a public, a sort of public well, also the zone. concentration of corporate power isn't great either. Right, but uh, but I'm just I'm just saying it's not the novelty of the of the tech platforms, and this is what makes this such a weird and vexing problem. The novelty of the tech platforms is that it's just not clear what they are. And Facebook and Twitter and all of these companies exist in this bizarre zone where they are not responsible for the content that they're producing or or benefiting from. And yet they are to some extent, and as we've seen just in the last week, they can in fact exert tremendous power. Twitter has a larger power over Donald Trump that it just exerted than any, you know, newspaper or TV network had over a president in the past. Well, no, and arguably than Congress had. Right. I mean, in some ways. Well, that's right. That's the other thing. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I agree with you. I think that there's a you can tell a story where actually the problem really is Section 230. Right. That basically 
by this thing that people argued was sort of necessary for the internet to be free so that, you know, message boards couldn't get sued for, you know, the crazy rants that were posted on them has ended up enabling the creation of these companies that have helped destroy actual journalism <laughs> without having any responsibility. Right. If you could sue Facebook or Twitter the way you could sue the New York Times if we published blatant defamation, then these companies would be much, much, much smaller. The reasonable fear, what would be my fear, right, as, you know, someone who has a few opinions outside <laughs> the mainstream of American politics, right, is that the benefits to being part of a big social media network as a participant in social media, as a human being who participates in them, are such that most people will stick with Facebook and Twitter and these kind of places even if they are restricting content a lot more. And they won't go back to their local newspaper, which is what I wish they would do. They'll stick with them. And so you will end up with something that, you know, both conservatives and the further left worry about, right? Which is a sort of, most of the public square will be sort of strictly policed for kind of center-left orthodoxies. That that's that would be my... I guess, whereas I tend to think that, you know, the 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 reason that I am at least open to the idea of getting rid of Section 230, and I guess I could be persuaded that it's a bad idea, is that I just think it might destroy these companies, and I think these companies should be destroyed. Yes. No, I think that's, I think that that's a, a totally reason. I, I mean, I, I think these companies are bad. Um, and right. So we have I, I don't no think arguments. I, I don't, um, yeah. Yeah, we've <laughs> run out of arguments. So I think we have reached enough agreement in this segment of the argument that we should probably end here. And I think I haven't done a recommendation for a while, so I guess I'll offer one. Um, but I'm a huge dork who reads fantasy novels, and so it it's important, you know, since the point of these recommendations is to come up with things that take your mind off the news, the thing that has been taking my mind off the news most um, is a British fantasy novelist named Joe Abercrombie, who's written, I guess it's probably up to like nine or ten fantasy novels that I unaccountably hadn't read until a friend who's, let's say, arguably an even bigger dork than I am, told me that I needed to read them. And they're really, they're really good. And they're called, the initial series is called The First Law Trilogy. And in certain ways, it's very conventional fantasy set in, you know, a world sort of on the cusp between the Middle Ages and some kind of renaissance. It's also sort of a grim, dark, revisionist fantasy in certain ways. The, you know, wizard figure is a lot more ambiguous than Gandalf was in Lord of the Rings. And there's, you know, a lot so it's like a dark edge, the version of the dark edge superhero story. It's the story. gritty reboot of Lord of the Rings, and there are, and there are, <laughs> right, and there's a lot of fantasy <laughs> novels like this. And I don't, I don't actually love that style. Um, Abercrombie, the novelist, is, um, you know, he's a little bit too in love with violence. He's a little bit too in love with writing sex scenes that are like deliberately written to be extremely gross seeming, I think. Um, so th those don't sound like intense recommendations, <laughs> but but the <laughs> books are just, they're, they're just really, really good. Can you summarize them? I mean, can you just, can you tell me what the plot is? Um, I mean, it's a fantasy novel. You know, there's a sort of group of great powers, you know, sort of bunch of like Northmen in the North and a kind of English Frankish style 
empire consolidating in the middle of the world, a sort of fallen down Roman style imperium that's um, seen better days and a kind of... this all sounds extremely familiar. Yeah, yeah. Well, fantasy functions as, not all fantasy, but a lot of fantasy functions as sort of refashioned versions of the last thousand years of human history or the pre-1600 version of human history. Um, But then there's also a supernatural element where there's sort of essentially a conflict between wizards that is sort of the background to superpower conflict. So um, this is, this is. Okay. Well, anyway, I, I'm like very much looking forward to the HBO miniseries version of. Yes. I I think I. Of this story. Okay. So, so what's the recommendation again? (laughs) Two hours later, the recommendation is um, (laughs) the fantasy novels of Joe Abercrombie and That's our show for this week. The Argument is a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. Our team includes Alison Bruzak, Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, Vishaka Darba, Isaac Jones, Kate Sinclair, Paula Schumann, and Kathy Tu. We'll see you on the other side of Joe Biden's inauguration. But it's just like one battle, 500 pages. Um, oh, my God. That sounds horrible. <laughs> no, nah, but, it, but it, well, yeah. <laughs>